title of today's Dhamma talk is Satipatthana part 2 and we will continue where we left off yesterday. And so, uh, but just to uh, recall, uh, yesterday uh, we uh, discussed uh, the Pali term uh, Satipatthana that is so essential for uh, meditators who undertake this Satipatthana meditation. And uh, we looked uh, at uh, its meaning, at the etymology of it, and uh, we paid particular attention to the different qualities of uh, mindfulness of sati. And so you will remember that the characteristic of mindfulness was non-superficiality, apalapana lakana in the Pali scriptural language. Then its function is non-forgetfulness, or absence of confusion, then the first manifestation is that of a a state of being face-to-face with the object of observation, and uh, the secondary manifestation is that of protection. And later on we shall deal some more with that aspect of uh, protection. And uh, the two proximate causes for the arising of mindfulness are given in the text as uh, a strong perception of an object, tira sanya padatana in the Pani scriptural language, and then kaya satipatthana padatana, which are you know, the four establishments of mindfulness uh, themselves. Now, apart from this, we you know, then further emphasize that mindfulness should possess this quality of immediacy and that it should firmly grasp an object, that it should cover the object entire object and then much importance should be given to the continuity of this mindfulness and uh, you know, then we also said something that mindfulness you know, should be rushing you know, towards uh, you know, the uh, object of observation, rushing, leaping, plunging into you know, the object. So this uh, you know, then brings across uh, uh, the dynamic nature of uh, mindfulness. And uh, apart from this, we also mentioned uh, that uh, the observing mind should be concurrent with the uh, object observed. And if this is not the case, then it will be somewhat difficult to know, to properly observe the object and uh, to know its nature. Now, today we shall continue with this and explore a few further aspects as aspects of mindfulness as mentioned in the text and I will base part of this on Venerable Analayo's explanations drawing from his book Satipatthana and then we'll go into the protective quality of mindfulness and then we shall and take a look at mindfulness in the context of wandering mind. And since wandering mind is a feature you know, that concerns you know, beginning meditators a lot, so it's helpful you know, then you know, to know a few things of how to you know, tackle this wandering mind. 
Now, before you know, going into some you know, more you know, aspects, as mentioned in the you know, text, um, one you know, personal observation regarding mindfulness, namely, in the course of uh, one's meditation practice, what do you think? Is the quality of the mindfulness always the same or changing? Hmm? It's changing. And uh, not just in the sense that sometimes it's weak and sometimes it's stronger, but uh, in the sense that uh, it's assuming different, uh, well, different qualities. And uh, this will be further explained. So, for instance, when a meditator is uh, in the first insight knowledge, then this mindfulness tends to be somewhat discontinuous. So usually meditators experience a a kind of stop-and-go mindfulness. So sometimes it's there and at other times it's not. And the same thing we can say holds true of uh, mindfulness during the second insight knowledge. So there too it's still pretty unsteady sometimes uh, (coughs) it's uh, available and other times uh, uh, it's not. Now, during the third insight knowledge, and uh, most of you will sooner or later experience this insight knowledge, the mindfulness starts suddenly to assume a new quality, namely as panoramic. And panoramic mindfulness is said with regard to the objects observed, the way objects are seen. And to explain this a little bit further, what happens is the mindfulness will be directed, mostly directed towards the most predominant object. So there's awareness of this most predominant object. And at the same time, so it seems simultaneously, so it seems is the meditator, is the mind aware of a whole range of other objects occurring in the background. So let's say if the primary focus is on the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, a meditator may find that he or she at the same time is aware of a pain somewhere in the back and uh, then maybe some tension or or tearing sensation in the thigh and then maybe some numbness in the foot and uh, on top of this some mental state. And to believe that uh, uh, mindfulness is truly no, no, truly aware of several objects at the same time you know, would be, from an ultimate certain point of view, you know, would be wrong. Because uh, the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist uh, philosophy and uh, psychology, clearly states that ultimately speaking, one moment of consciousness can you know, take in only one object at a time and not two or three uh, or five objects uh, simultaneously. However, the way to explain this panoramic quality of mindfulness is uh, by way of the speed of the mind. Now, the the, the operational speed of the mind is so high, so fast, uh, that 
um, the impression, the appearance of a simultaneous awareness is created, and so when in <coughs> fact you know, it is not the case, and the mind is extremely quickly going from one object to another, and so since. Uh, uh, at you know, the beginning of the meditation practice, the mind is still somewhat slow, so you know, one perceives this then as a simultaneous panoramic awareness of uh, you know, things. And please take this as one, uh, one out of many examples where the appearance is one thing and what truly happens is another thing. And uh, in the course of the retreat, I'll you know, point out a number of uh, other you know, such uh, cases. Now, as we then go on in our meditation practice and uh, a meditator reaches the fourth insight knowledge, the mindfulness tends to assume a rather dynamic quality. And so things are kind of speeding up. And not just uh, you know, the flow of events, of objects occurring, but uh, also the mindfulness itself. And previously, a meditator had all uh, his or her time you know, to explore an object, to investigate an object uh, uh, in great detail. Now, no more. However, the mind has become, or the mindfulness has become sharper, and just a few moments of awareness of one object is enough for the mind to know its nature. And so, hence, one object presents itself, the mindfulness immediately goes towards this object, and so, you know, then is aware of it, knows its nature, the object disappears, and some other object arises. Again, the mindfulness goes towards this new object, and so, you know, briefly observes it, knows its nature, and the object disappears. And one object after another in you know, the same you know, fashion. Now, of course, it's not happening like this all the time, but there, are, there will be periods uh, in your meditation practice where it does happen uh, like this. Now, when a meditator experiences this fourth insight knowledge and mindfulness assumes this certain dynamic quality, then naturally a meditator will be highly disappointed about his or her practice or rather, uh, rather pleased. What do you think? Huh? Two easy questions. So, rather pleased because things are going quite nicely. And so previously one had to fight a lot to, you know, to you know, really have the mindfulness land on an, an object. Now you know, this no longer represents a difficulty. Now in the fifth insight knowledge, we find uh, a rather intriguing phenomena, phenomenon taking place. Namely, that as a meditator is mostly observing the dissolution of formations one after the other, uh, sooner or later the mind assumes the, um, the ability of not only paying attention to the dissolution of the first object, let's assume some physical object like the rising movement of the abdomen or some pain, 
And shortly after, right a moment after this, having seen the dissolution of the material object, the mind then adverts towards the towards consciousness itself, which took or with which one had seen the dissolution of the physical object at first. And one then sees the dissolution of the, you know, of the consciousness itself. Now, this happens at an extremely high speed again. And so, so this particular phase is characterized by the so-called double or triple advertence of uh, the mind in quick succession, first to the original object, then to the corresponding uh, consciousness, and then for some meditators there's even a, a step in between, namely seeing the dissolution of the you know, re- you know, relevant or respective uh, label. And so... Late at other points in the practice, it's not happening like uh, this. Then come a number of insight knowledges uh, that uh, are somewhat difficult uh, in terms of experience. And the mindfulness there is somewhat ordinary. And and then in the tenth insight knowledge, the mindfulness again assumes this panoramic quality. So uh, again it will know not just the primary object, but a number of other objects, more or less, uh, so it appears at the same time. And in the Eleventh insight knowledge, knowledge of equanimity about formations, the mindfulness again, uh, well, it becomes somewhat or close to perfect. And it can be characterized to be somewhat one-pointed, which means it is totally focused on one object at a time. And in order to you know, make this clear, one has to understand that in the previous insight knowledge, it's not the case. In the previous insight knowledge, you know, the mindfulness is directed towards a, a field of objects, to, towards a variety of objects. Now, in you know, the knowledge of equanimity bond formations, you know, the mind is rather one-pointed. Uh, and so... Uh, at the most, it uh, observes, uh, well, it will be on one object for you know, some time, then it might uh, you know, go towards another object, uh, stay there for a while, and then maybe to a third one. But that's about it. So not certain uh, you know, great variety of objects will be there. And at times, the mindfulness can, you know, the operational speed of the mindfulness can become extremely fast. And so... to the surprise of a meditator. And as indicated uh, a few moments ago, this kind of mindfulness is somewhat closer to perfect. However, in comparison to the mindfulness of an arahant, of course it's still not very much, or it's not that strong. So, What all of this then means for you you as meditators is 
in the course of the meditation practice, as you do your practice, do occasionally pay attention to the quality of your mindfulness itself. So, what is it like? And uh, is your mindfulness rather dull, or is it sharp, is it slow, is it quick, and uh, does it land on the object uh, without any difficulty, or does it uh, uh, slip off uh, the object and kind of uh, uh, not uh, manage to reach uh, the object? Now, the texts mention a number of or a few other qualities that mindfulness should assume. And the first one is mentioned in the Majjhima Nikaya, the 19th Sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya, paragraph 12, in a sutta known as the Dweda Vitakratna Sutta. And there, an illustration is given. And I'll quote from from the text. It is the Buddha who is speaking. Just as in the last month of the hot season, when all the crops have been brought inside the villages. And... Please, from a historical point of view and from a geographical point of view, imagine um, this to be some place on the Indian subcontinent and mostly um, or most likely the northern part of this Indian subcontinent. And it could be in Nepal, present-day Nepal or northern part of India. And uh, living in Lumbini myself, um, and so, you know, sometimes driving across uh, the, you know, the plains um, around uh, Lumbini, one gains just uh, this uh, impression. Namely, there is a hot season, and actually right now it would be the hot season in you know, Nepal, and it's dry, and so, you know, the crops have been you know, brought in, and, and so you'll have villages, oftentimes still you know, with uh, mud houses, or rather you know, poor, not uh, as uh, uh, advanced as uh, you know, we have it here in this uh, country, and mostly no heating system whatsoever. And uh, so anyway, at that time uh, of the year, the local farmers who usually all have at least one cow or one buffalo, they would take their their cattle and let them graze in some area where the grass is still somewhat green. And the Lumbini development area, where I happen to live, is a protected area, and the grass there tends to be very green. And so, it is not uncommon to see, uh, well, cow herds with huge uh, groups of uh, cattle uh, grazing in inside and around uh, the the place where the Buddha was actually born. And a cow herd usually, and it really fits into the picture even today, 
would typically sit underneath a tree because it's hot and then uh, watch his or her uh, cattle. So the Buddha then goes on to say a cowherd would guard his cows while staying at the root of a tree or out in the open since he needs only to be mindful that the cows are there. So too, there was need for me only, so it's the Buddha who's saying this, there there was need for me only to be mindful that those states were there or those objects of observation were there. So what this illustration makes, or what does this illustration um, say about our mindfulness? So when we sit in meditation, we should get all, uh, all tensed up and uh, you know, sitting there with gritted, uh, gritted teeth. Yes, like this? Uh, no? <laughs> Obviously not. And so, and so what we need is a calm and you know, detached uh, attitude. Calm and detached uh, attitude of uh, observation. And this, of course, is easy to say, but the next time you are, well, overwhelmed or attacked by a number of really difficult mental states, then it might not be so easy to do. And uh, so at that point, try to remember that your mindfulness should assume this quality of a calm and detached observation. So you don't get immediately lost in what is uh, happening. You don't get entangled and carried away, but rather you maintain this rather neutral and objective position of of the observer. Now, the Anguja Nikaya, the Theragata, Majima Nikaya um, mention another quality that mindfulness should assume, and this is that sati or mindfulness should give full and continuous attention to a matter. So the aspect of continuous attention is there again, and we should not give part only part of our attention to an object, but all of it. Now, a common experience among meditators is that they observe one object, like maybe some some pain or so, some mild pain, and then. And so 50% of the attention goes on the pain, and the other 50% are engaged in of thinking. Thinking, planning, remembering some events from the past, and so on and so forth. So this would not be the way to go. But rather, we should give 100% of our attention to the most predominant object occurring at the time. <clears throat> now, the text, in particular, the 
Sutta Nipata, again Majima Nikaya, and certainly some commentaries point out uh, that uh, the mindfulness assumes a preparatory role for the arising of uh, wisdom. And without the presence of mindfulness, it would be impossible for wisdom to occur. Um, However, even if uh, mindfulness is present, if it's not accompanied or complemented by a number of other mental states, wisdom will still not arise. And so usually at least some effort needs to be there and uh, some amount of faith and confidence needs to be present. And on top of this, uh, the the Venerable Sainte Upandita likes to point out, well, these two jhanic factors of uh, aiming, vitakra, as well as rubbing, vichara, should be uh, or should accompany the mindfulness. And if this is the case, uh, then in the presence of continuous uh, mindfulness, uh, then concentration is bound to arise. And so then only when the concentration is also there, will, um, will wisdom arise. Now, you may have heard of the five controlling faculties, you know, consisting of faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And then you will have probably also heard of the seven enlightenment factors, you know, consisting of mindfulness, then investigation of states, and then of energy, of joy and rapture, of tranquility, of concentration and as number seven uh, equanimity and in both cases they fall they can be uh, or they uh, yeah they fall into two groups and so both of these uh, groups um, need to or pairs need to be well balanced so Effort and concentration need to be well balanced, and faith and wisdom need to be well balanced. And so the active group of enlightenment factors consisting of uh, um, well, investigation of states, energy, and so, you know, joy needs to be balanced with the more you know, passive uh, or, or enlightenment factors consisting of uh, tranquility, concentration, and uh, equanimity. And which position does certain mindfulness then assume in all of this? In the middle, yes, and it assumes this uh, uh, function of bringing the respective uh, pair of opposites into balance. Thus, um, the text, the Samyutta Nikaya, is pointing out that mindfulness has a monitoring and steering uh, quality in relation to other mental factors, and it could be compared to a watchful charioteer who um, is responsible in uh, well um, guiding or, or uh, steering 
a, a coach, a chariot that is being pulled by two or three or you know, four uh, horse, horses, or it could be even uh, you know, cows. And so this particular, with regard to this particular quality of uh, uh, monitoring and uh, steering, there's actually not much we have to do there. This will happen quite naturally. And I'll explain how this happens. Namely, as a meditator, is progressing in his certain practice and in particular approaching the knowledge of equanimity about formations, he or she will at times overdo one or the other of those uh, uh, mental factors. And so you know, a particular factor may be excessive. Now, after a while, the, med- the meditator will realize this is not working. So, in, case, in the case of uh, excessive effort, this usually leads to restlessness. And uh, in the case of excessive concentration, it leads to what? Sloth and torpor, yes, quite correct. And <clears throat> then... Um, at other times, the meditator may think, okay, you know, things are moving quite nicely. What if I you know, uh, you know, back off a little bit and take it uh, uh, easy? And so then if uh, one of these controlling faculties or enlightenment factors is somewhat you know, weak, then it may lead uh, <clears throat> to you know, some adverse uh, you know, state. So... If there's not enough effort being put into the practice, then it leads to sloth and torpor. If the concentration is not strong enough, then it will lead to what? Restlessness, Restlessness, yes, is correct, or a distracted state of mind. And thus, simply... Um, through the practice itself, by way of trial and error, will a meditator understand that excesses don't work and uh, deficiencies of those uh, uh, respective mental states or factors doesn't work either. So naturally, gradually, over time, the mind finds its own balance. Now, Mindfulness should then, not just should, does assume another really important function, and this is as restraining, namely restraining the mind. And I'll give you an example for this. You are seeing some, some pleasant object, like some mm, deliciously looking item of food. And then, in the absence of mindfulness, well, a thought, okay, let me grab uh, this, let's assume ice cream or so, let me grab this ice cream and uh, enjoy this ice cream uh, that is uh, uh, available somewhere. And... uh, 
in the presence of mind. And so then one actually does this, and it may you know, lead to some problem. Um, because it's not paid for, and uh, no one hasn't asked for permission, and, <laughs> and so on. <laughs> and so, so as a... <laughs> however, as a, no, no, well, highly experienced Vipassana meditator, you see the same ice cream, the same desire arises in the mind, and then what happens? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Oh, you pay for it. <laughs> oh, you pay for it. <laughs> and that's correct. <laughs> yes, indeed. You pay for it, and then you enjoy your ice cream. <laughs> And so, no, so in this case, in this case, the you know, mindfulness is uh, you know, restraining your you know, impulsive uh, or the impulsive nature of the mind you know, to you know, just grab the ice cream and run off with it. <laughs> but uh, no, of course, none of uh, the men or all of you are. You know, have highly developed mindfulness, so this uh, yeah, will never happen no, no, to any of us. Um, now, there's one no, further uh, aspect that our that mindfulness should possess, and this really you know, concerns all of us uh, throughout the retreat here, and especially you know, outside of the formal you know, sitting meditation, you know, meaning you know, during the walking meditation and the general activities. Now, I'll give you, you know, the illustration you know, first, an illustration that uh, the Buddha you know, came up uh, with and uh, that he related uh, to his own uh, you know, followers. And it was an you know, illustration made up by you know, the Buddha, namely of a man who had to carry an, an, a pot filled to the brim with oil on his head and he was not supposed to spill a single drop of oil um, and he was, you know, he was asked to, you know, or he was made, to walk through a crowd that was happily watching you know, some entertainment you know, going on. So, you know, some show, some dancing uh, activity you know, going on. And so, uh, apparently this man had you know, offended against the king, and the king then asked another person to you know, be right to walk right behind you know, this man carrying the you know, pot filled you know, with oil and his sword in the hand and ready to cut this man's you know, head off as soon as he would spill one single uh, drop of oil. Now, imagine you'd be in this position. Then, how would you go about it? So. 
would you, you know, go around with your... by me? Uh, not fast, okay. So <laughs> this is one important aspect. So as a meditator, what we learn from this is we should walk as slowly as possible. Eh? And then what else? Carefully, yes. And so, then carefully in which sense? Vigilance. Vigilance, yes. And vigilance, uh, no. oh, vigilance in the sense that we pay attention to the entertainment, the, the dancing show going on. <laughs> huh? Not this. So, n- n- vigilance with regard to what? The oil. The oil. Okay. And... Um, restraining the senses. Ah. Restraining the senses and... The feet where they are stepping. And what about the body? So, you know, we have the pot of oil on top of the head. And then we walk around like this. Uh, you know, the body... The body needs to be steady. Yes, indeed. And a lot of our attention should go to the pot on top of the head to make sure that it's upright and calm and stable. And this then requires that the body underneath that is carrying the pot, you know, that this uh, body is, uh, you know, well, um, rather, uh, rather calm, rather balanced, and you know, centered, and no brisk, sudden movements being made. So, what we have, what we can learn from this uh, illustration given by you know, the Buddha for uh, mindfulness, are a number of aspects. So, the balance and centeredness of our mindfulness. And so it should be directed towards the body and so phenomena occurring inside of the body and not to events around. And then, furthermore, restraint of the senses is absolutely necessary. So if the man carrying the pots of oil were to look here and there and see what those dancers are doing, then you can imagine very soon his head will be cut off and rolling on the ground. And so... Then, as Venerable Kunishi pointed out, much attention should go to the feet. And as Venerable Viranyani has pointed out, um, well, the the meditator should walk as slowly as possible. And be careful and be vigilant. So, kindly, when you do your walking meditation, and when you're engaged in general activities, trying to remember this illustration for mindfulness and trying to adopt these qualities of mindfulness to your practice. And this will make a huge, huge difference. And when one observes meditators over time, and so one then compares the way a beginning meditator moves about with the way 
and a somewhat advanced meditator moves about, one finds a huge difference. Beginning meditators usually tend to easily lose their balance, and so they almost fall over, and so, you know, sometimes they misstep and have to make you know, corrections along the way. Whereas advanced meditators who you know, are experiencing one of the, the higher insight knowledges usually you know, display rather graceful uh, movements, a graceful you know, way of moving about. And it's quite, uh, you know, quite different from you know, the way beginning meditators uh, uh, walk around. So, something to uh, remember. Now, mindfulness should uh, then assume uh, still some further uh, qualities, and partly we've uh, talked about this already yesterday, namely, it should have a non-interfering quality. So, see, as meditators, we have... Uh, this tendency of trying to make things happen. And uh, let's say you're observing your rising the movement of the abdomen. There is a particular sensation there. You're trying really hard to you know, you know, well, observe it and to know its nature, but it's still difficult. And then you're trying to interfere. Maybe you make your horizon to slow down a little bit to give yourself some more time to observe it. And this, is, you know, this means you're interfering with it. So don't do this. But rather, you know, just observe it you know, the way it uh, is. And at times, the you know, rising and falling movement of the abdomen may be you know, very slow and so, you know, barely discernible. In this case, just leave it the way it is. Just you know, observe it as best as you can. And if you can no longer discern it, okay, then you know, move your attention to something else. Or if at other times your rising and falling is somewhat forceful and uh, somewhat faster, well, then just accept this even though you may not uh, like it. So uh, as much as possible, we try not to interfere with what is happening. This, in the beginning, is somewhat difficult to to, uh, achieve. However, in the course of uh, the meditation practice, meditators gradually get the point, and then, uh, quite naturally, they just observe whatever is uh, happening. And the next quality of mindfulness um, will be explained in the following way. In one school of modern psychology, uh, patients are, or people are asked, people who are experiencing strong emotions like uh, anger, act it out. So, uh, I've read this already several times. If you feel really angry about something or someone, then find yourself in some quiet room or so, and then take a cushion and take a stick and beat the cushion as much as you like. So, as meditators, are we encouraged to do the same thing? (laughs) You're saying yes, of course. (laughs) 
Oh, no cushions to beat here. Also, no sticks around. Um, good. And so, so this is one case. And uh, the other case was, as uh, you will all remember, uh, maybe our grandparents had a different, in general, had a different view on emotions. And for them, it was what? Pardon me? suppress them yes indeed so we don't we suppress those emotions we don't show them no matter what and um uh, as meditators do we do the same thing yes yes mm-hmm. then as meditators you know, we in the begin especially in the beginning we first of all we take a different we dif- we take a different stance, namely in between, and our stance as Satipatthana meditators is simply to observe whatever is coming up, and so even if uh, some you know, anger stronger anger is arising, and then and we're not so familiar with it yet, and then we take the anger as an object of observation, and we try to we work with it as best as we can, and so only when the anger gets kind of uh, uh, excessive, out of control. then we could consider suppressing it as a measure of last, uh, uh, as a measure of last resort, as a last resort. Mm. Or a different case would be if a meditator has observed anger already a hundred thousand times and is well familiar with its qualities and has no more doubt about it that it is unwholesome, then, um, then indeed you know, one is advised you know, to, um, well, first of all, to dispel it with mindfulness, to observe it with mindfulness, and if the mindful, and by then the mindfulness you know, could be already quite strong, and so and then the anger might disappear. If not, you know, then may you know, to you know, suppress it in one way or another, or you know, sorry to ignore it, and so to shift one's attention to some other you know, predominant object. So please keep in mind that mindfulness is, or the, in, in the practice of mindfulness, we follow neither of these two extremes, either acting out. So hitting the cushion or yelling, screaming, and so on, nor do we suppress it in the first place. But rather, we just observe it. And this is a rather gentle approach. And however, this rather gentle approach, if applied again and again over time, will make a huge difference and leads to um, a gradual change with regard to to those mental states and will lead to a gradual weakening of those mental states. And acting out these uh, destructive emotions may be helpful to, it may be helpful for 
you know, for the moment, but does it really you know, make this uh, destructive emotion go away or not? No. Uh, it no. doesn't. No. no? And it comes back, it may come back even stronger. No? And so a, medit- and a non-meditator may not even you know, understand uh, the nature of anger. It's just acting on it, but uh, not certainly seeing uh, its certain characteristic and certain so on and so forth. And when observing meditators, now, one finds that over a longer period of time, and I mean here you know, years of uh, alternating intensive practice and uh, occasional uh, or you know, daily practice in between, over time, even you know, the person with the greatest anger at the beginning of the practice gradually will notice a decrease of uh, anger which means we're heading in the right direction. Now, of course, the eradication of uh, anger you know, doesn't happen uh, right away during one's very first uh, retreat. Uh, it takes the attainment of uh, um, anagami uh, manga, so the path of, uh, of a non-returner. Now, Venerable Gunaratana, Bande Gunaratana, with regard to mindfulness, points out, and I'm quoting from his, uh, incompletely quoting from his book, Mindfulness in Plain English, that what we need is bare attention and a non-conceptual awareness. Now, this points uh, again to an important aspect, Namely, when we observe an object of uh, observation, then we don't want our uh, awareness to be cluttered by other things such as associative thoughts, such as concepts, and so on and so forth. What we need is just uh, the bare observation of the object without uh, any additives. And this is somewhat along the line of uh, the instruction given by the enlightened one to the ascetic Bahia. When there's the scene, there is only the scene. When there's the hearing, when there's uh, the hearing, there's only only hearing or only the heard. And uh, so on and so forth for the other sense doors. And what meditators in Lumbini find very helpful is kind of an attitude of and now, and now, and now. Now, what this means is you're observing an object like the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. You're observing it for a few seconds and then the mind goes off and it happens again and again. And then you bring your mind back to the object of observation and you ask yourself, okay, what is it like now? And then, what is happening right now? And again, right now. So from moment to moment to moment to moment. If you manage to uphold this for one single sitting, you you will see that it will make a huge difference. 
and uh, it will lead to you know, a very quick you know, progress in you know, one's uh, meditation practice. Now, of course, this is not so easy to do. It takes quite a lot of, uh, uh, well, uh, effort. But do give it a try and see whether this works for you or not. And so, Venerable Gunaratna points out uh, uh, an aspect that uh, is uh, obvious, namely what we need is present time awareness. And so, uh, this, is, this is one of the points that uh, one needs to um, make meditators understand again and again to keep the mind in the present moment. The mind has a tremendous tendency to either go off into the future or to go off into uh, the past. And rarely is it really in the present moment. And very much so during the beginning days, few days of uh, a meditation retreat. Now, actually, it takes a lot of practice to really tune into the present moment. One could certainly say that only a person who has, who is experiencing the eleventh insight knowledge of equanimity bound formations, and maybe also in, no, no, also in the fourth insight knowledge, so the knowledge of the arising, passing away formations. Uh, that such a meditator's mind is really uh, in the present moment. And so this takes a lot of certain training to get there, to tune into this certain present moment. During a number of the other insight knowledges, it's not really the case. So oftentimes the mind is lagging behind or it's certainly somewhere in the future. So this too is uh, a certain an aspect that uh, we should you know, pay attention to and certainly that we should try to you know, integrate in, uh, in our practice as much as possible. Then when we undertake the meditation practice, sitting, walking, general activities, uh, in particular in the walking, we need to realize that we're not walking as we usually do to get somewhere, to uh, achieve some, uh, some goal or to reach some destination, but rather no, the goal is certainly simply just to be mindful. And what this then points, points to is that our mindfulness should be a goalless mindfulness. We don't worry about uh, uh, gaining Nibbana uh, or not gaining it. All we need to do in the end is just to be with the presently arising object, and that's uh, good enough. And this is actually the best guarantee for um, well much development in the practice. But if we keep worrying you know, all the time, oh, you know, am I going to you know, progress in the practice, and uh, you know, will the Dhamma be mine you know, during this retreat or not, you know, then you know, the mind is 
busy with these uh, you know, thoughts and uh, it won't have uh, you know, the time to observe what's really uh, going on. So meditators are you know, doing best you know, usually when they just give their best, when they're mindful from moment to moment and, uh, uh, and then uh, things will unfold uh, quite naturally. Now, the venerable Sadhupandita likes to point out another quality of mindfulness, and this is with regard to unwholesome mental states, and what do you think this is? Uh, you cannot achieve mindfulness with unwholesome mental states. Yes, it's good. And, and what does your mindfulness, what's the function of mindfulness with regard to those unwholesome mental states? Let's say before they have arisen. Ah, there we go. Namely, to prevent. So, an unwholesome mental state is just about to arise, but you know, mindfulness uh, is uh, present in the mind and uh, you know, thus it prevents you know, the arising of this unwholesome mental state. And in the other case, where an unwholesome mental state has arisen already in the stream of consciousness, then what's the function of mindfulness in this case? To? To get rid of it, yes, to, um, yeah, well, to cure it, correct. And so, so, mindfulness is, as the Buddha says, useful everywhere, and it serves like like a malaria medicine. It serves as a prophylactic as well as a curative medicine when malaria is present. And uh, so mindfulness prevents the arising from unwholesome, <coughs> arising of unwholesome mental states. <coughs> Sorry. And um, no, furthermore, once they have arisen, it uh, will then dispel them. Now, maybe this much uh, regarding you know, various qualities our mindfulness certainly should possess. Can you think of any further quality? That was uh, that went unmentioned, and I'll be happy to add it to my list. Anything from your own practice that you find you know, should be you know, should be mentioned. Oh yes. Yeah. So, Venerable Kunishi is saying uh, that uh, uh, underlying all of this, there should be you know, some you know, loving kindness. This indeed uh, you know, helps a lot. No? So, if other wholesome mental states are there, like you know, loving kindness, and uh, in particular equanimity, you know, upeka, uh, this will make a big, big, big uh, you know, difference. In the absence of uh, loving-kindness, one easily assumes uh, an aversive you know, attitude you know, towards some difficult uh, object, 
and some, in the absence of equanimity, one uh, may easily uh, get uh, entangled you know, with, uh, in particular, an unwholesome uh, mental state. And no. Uh, Ah, yes. Yeah, okay. So, uh, in the present, Venerable Kuni, she is saying that in the presence of uh, loving kindness, uh, it helps to keep uh, the ego uh, low. And uh, indeed, this we need. Without effort, without using force. Good. So, now, if we still uh, have some time, uh, do you want, to, you want to continue or do you want to stop at this point? Continue. Continue. Okay. So then I'll continue for maybe another 10 minutes. Um, the protective quality of uh, mindfulness. And uh, mindfulness as we've uh, just discussed, has uh, this or assumes this prophylactic uh, uh, quality, but it also serves as a cure, and um, so it prevents uh, these unwholesome mental states from uh, arising. And on top of this, mindfulness guards or protects a meditator against unskillful physical and verbal behavior. And the rationale behind this is very simple. If if, uh, the mind is protected through mindfulness, then unwholesome mental states cannot arise in the stream of consciousness in the first place. And in the absence of unwholesome mental states, well, there is no reason for unskillful physical action and verbal action. Since the Buddha said, the mind is the forerunner of all things. So if wholesome mental states are predominant in the mind, they will lead to wholesome physical or bodily and verbal deeds. Now, mindfulness is um, useful not only on a retreat, but also during... Um, our daily life, during work. And just to give you one single example for uh, this. There is a Burmese neurosurgeon who works in Hong Kong. And uh, a number of uh, years ago, he was elected among all or selected among all the different neurosurgeons in Hong Kong to be the head neurosurgeon. So he was given a privileged position. And he himself then explained how or what led up to this. Apparently, some of the other neurosurgeons, while performing surgery on some patient, would suddenly get into arguments, into some quarrels about this or that. And whereas this Burmese neurosurgeon had 
trained already as a student in Burma. Every you know, weekend he would go to the Shwedagon Pagoda and you know, then practice Samatha meditation, possibly even you know, some uh, mindfulness meditation. So he had some you know, um, well, meditation background. And he said that performing a neurosurgeon surgery on a patient for him is something like a deep contemplation. And he would get extremely concentrated during this. And naturally it follows that he would not engage with his co-neurosurgeons and all the helpers' assistants around in some quarrel. And so this, of course, then spread, and so the, the people you know, responsible for the selection of the head neurosurgeon found, about, found out about his very positive qualities and selected him. And mindfulness further, and this is maybe even more important, helps to prevent even the slightest mistake. So you can imagine, as a neurosurgeon, one slightly wrong cut, maybe one millimeter too long, or in the wrong direction or so, may already be enough to cause some impairment, future impairment to the patient. So the consequences are tremendous. And if mindfulness can be of great value to a neurosurgeon, then um, it must also be of value to many of uh, the other professions. And mindfulness is uh, a quality that also protects uh, a meditator against uh, three dangers, and uh, sorry, four dangers. And those four dangers are mentioned in the texts themselves. And there is, first of all, the danger of self-blame. And then there's the danger of being criticized by the wise or censored by the wise. And then there's the danger of being punished by some authority. And then lastly, there's the danger of falling into a state of loss. Now, um, when do these four dangers occur? They occur when a meditator or when a person lacks mindfulness and therefore acts in one way or another impulsively, does something that he or she will regret later on, says something that he or she will regret later on. So does something unwholesome. And if one has either said or done something unskillful in the past, this will come up in one's consciousness and one will end up with a bad conscience and one will blame oneself, why did I say this, why did I do this? Uh, It would have been better left undone, unsaid. So a meditator, a meditator of of Satipatthana uh, will uh, keep 
you know, good attention over the mind or will guard, you know, protect the mind you know, with mindfulness and thus no unwholesome you know, deeds you know, will you know, follow. And thus this danger of self-blame is uh, not there. And again, in the case of absence of mindfulness and uh, uh, some, in the case of uh, some impulsive behavior, a person does or says something unskillful, and uh, then um, this may trigger you know, being censored by you know, some you know, spiritual teacher or you know, some you know, worldly teacher or by one's parents uh, or the elders of uh, society. And naturally, this is not very you know, pleasant. And, so, and then one may get a well one mm, may be able to hide a certain you know, of wrongdoing for a while but certainly soon or later you know, the governing um, authority might certainly find out so let's say you've parked your car in a no parking zone and uh, thinking that this is perfectly all right, and then and then you go on a retreat, and and then you will remember you know, where your car is parked, and uh, and then uh, and then uh, well, you know, the self criticism will happen, and, uh, and then uh, well, you, know, you may end up uh, with a, a, a ticket. Mm. So this is an un, un, uh, unpleasant uh, result. Now, some of uh, the wrongdoings people think uh, they can hide you know, from you know, the authorities, and uh, they think they can get away. And it's actually you know, quite uh, common in modern society. Well, as long as we as we don't get caught, then we'll just do whatever we want to do, you know, and. So, uh, main thing is uh, not to get uh, caught. And uh, once in a while, uh, in front of uh, you know, some authorities, we display a rather, uh, uh, well, ethical behavior, but this is just on the surface. And then, um, when no one else is around, we'll just do the opposite. And so, this is actually rather, rather, we're taking big risks. And the risk involved is that of the last danger, namely of falling into a state of loss. So, even if one manages to hide one's wrongdoing from, from, from the wise, from the authorities, yet, uh, when the time comes to <clears throat> to pass away and, or to to cross over, then um, you know, we will have to face the results of our uh, actions of our karmic actions, and so, uh, this then may contribute you know, to uh, ending up in a state of loss, but naturally uh, this will not happen for parking wrongly. <laughs> and so, with regard to um, 
to this protection through mindfulness. The Buddha has, uh, um, the Buddha mentioned a nice uh, story you know, that is uh, given in the text, and uh, it is known as uh, you know, the Akuban. And so the question there arises, namely, what is more important to you know, protect oneself and uh, thus uh, others, or is it more important to protect others or is it more important to protect oneself? And what do you think? Both of them are more important. Yes. You're saying? Self. So, most important is, uh, indeed, to protect oneself first. And the story is uh, as follows, and I'll try to summarize it um, from memory. So, an acrobat and his assistants or or apprentice were um, performing their act of walking, uh, let's say, walking on a a tightrope. And then the acrobat master asked the apprentice to climb on his shoulder and then stay there. And he told him, okay, you look after me and I will then uh, look after you and you know, protecting each other, we will perform our show, get down and uh, you know, collect some you know, fees and uh, you know, that's it. And so then the apprentice said no uh, to the master, no master, um, it is not like this. Um, I will climb on your back and you will look after yourself, I will look after myself and both of us well protected will we do our show, get down from the tightrope and collect our fee. And then the Buddha asks his audience who was right and um, wait wait a minute, no, 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 the Buddha asked a rhetorical question um, namely, who was right, and he then himself answered that the apprentice uh, was uh, right. Now, so what we need to do is, um, by protecting oneself, we uh, protect uh, others. This in Pali is known as Atanam Rakanto Param Rakati. Um, but maybe having said this, um, the other aspect of uh, protecting others, and uh, through protecting others, one protects oneself, is also uh, valid. And so, but they have a different, uh, you know, different source, a different uh, you know, uh, origin or way of uh, uh, explanation. Now, As for protecting you know, oneself, or by tr- protecting oneself, one protects others. And I followed you know, here you know, some very nice explanations given by you know, Venerable Jnana Bonica. And what does this mean on a material level? By protecting our own health, we protect others' health. So. By, to give a simple example, while on retreat, 
we make sure that we don't catch a cold, that we don't end up uh, sneezing and coughing uh, all the time, and thus uh, possibly infecting the other meditators. And so we take uh, multivitamin tablets uh, uh, as a uh, prevention. And so we can uh, dress warmly so that we don't uh, catch a cold. Now, this will be one uh, such uh, case. And this goes for any kind of other communicable um, disease. So one prote- as one protects one's own health, one makes sure that one doesn't get uh, or catches a certain uh, illness, uh, one then or this then amounts to protecting others. Now, in terms of worldly life, when we drive, by driving carefully, by making sure that we don't get into an accident ourselves, we're protecting the other uh, participants in traffic. And by abstaining voluntarily, abstaining from alcohol, from drugs, and so on, we protect others from the transgressions that uh, could arise from uh, taking, uh, drinking alcohol or uh, taking drugs. Or um, there are situations in life where we are tempted to act violently and by restraining ourselves, our behavior, we are giving uh, well, a gift of protection you know, to others, so they are not, they don't get harmed. And there are many other, uh, there would be many other examples for protecting oneself, or by protecting oneself, one then you know, protects uh, others. Now, on an ethical level, so point of view of sila, this. Uh, then works as follows. Namely, by keeping precepts, we protect others. So, we protect ourselves against the manifestations of greed and uh, hatred. Others will be safe from our reckless greed for possessions and power, from our unrestrained lust and sensuality, from our envy and jealousy. They're safe from the disruptive consequences of our hate and enmity, which may be destructive or even murderous. And we keep in mind that there is oftentimes a so-called multiplier effect to our own actions. You think of uh, a parent, a parent of uh, children, and if a parent acts in an extremely greedy manner or in an extremely destructive manner, so acting out ill will, hatred, then this doesn't end with the person, with the parent, but it sets an example for the children. And if this kind of behavior gets repeated many times, well, obviously the children are going to, may, uh, under certain circumstances, copy it. 
and so uh, and then it may be even passed on several generations and you know, so being aware of this one should you know, really restrain uh, oneself as much as possible and to guard and protect uh, you know, one's own you know, mind and you know, one's own you know, bodily and you know, physical you know, behavior now by protecting oneself others are protected on an ethical you know, level and this in the Pali scriptural language is known as Abhya Dana. Dana means generosity, an act of generosity. Beya is fear, and so the prefix A means non. So a gift of non-fear, the gift of fearlessness. So by carefully, by meticulously observing the precepts, we're giving a gift of fearlessness to others. And as the Venerable Sadhu Pandita is pointing out, um, you know, occasionally during Dhamma talks, the gift of fearlessness is more important than a gift of uh, a gift or an act of you know, generosity, you know, such as certainly uh, giving food, giving you know, some warm clothes or some medicine or whatever else uh, you like, material things. So. Uh, you know, the gift of fearlessness from an ethical point of view, keeping one's precepts, is more important than a gift of uh, an ordinary um, uh, act of uh, dana. Now, the last point for today uh, will be protection through wisdom. And it is out of stupidity, out of ignorance, out of illusion, delusion, and certain carelessness, thoughtlessness, that we may harm ourselves and others in many different ways. But by acquiring true wisdom through mental development and mostly through you know, the practice of you know, Satipatthana, we protect ourselves and thus others are protected. So, and this protecting oneself and thereby others are protected. Atanam rakhanti. Wait a minute. This grows, um, grows out of the mental factor of uh, wisdom. And the other uh, aspect, namely by protecting others, one is protected oneself. Now, this we will discuss tomorrow, and so, now, this is based in a different mental state. Now, let me conclude today's Dhamma talk by wishing that may all of you, may all of, uh, may the mindfulness of all of you possess the many different qualities that uh, we've discussed, and uh, may most important of all, you know, may you. Um, or not most important of all, but may you uh, protect yourselves, and by protecting yourselves, may others certainly be protected. And in this way, may you give the gift of fearlessness to others. And this is all for tonight. Voila. Voila.